Tonight we're going to look at the book of Malachi. So if you um, want to turn there, I will be referring to different passages that you can read up on. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. That, Lord, we know that you speak to us through your word. And we ask that tonight not only would you we hear about your word and come to understand this book better, but, Lord, we'd also hear things that we need to hear in our own hearts, in our own minds, our own souls, that we might become uh, graced by the moving of your spirit in our hearts tonight. We pray, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Malachi, um, actually the Hebrew pronunciation is the Malachi, which literally means my messenger. Um, and so he is significant to us for a lot of reasons. Most importantly, I think, as the last of the prophets, he is the last written prophet that we will encounter until we get to John the Baptist. In fact, uh, the period from the end of Malachi till the beginning of the New Testament is referred to as the 400 silent years. So, kind of a misnomer, silent in the sense that we don't have any prophets that we know of, although there may well have been men with prophetic ministries, but none that uh, God determined or decided should be included in the canon of Scripture. But it's not silent because nothing happened. In fact, a lot have happened geopolitically and even spiritually to the Jewish people. I mean, this is the period that sees the the fall of the Persian Empire and the rise of the Grecian Empire under the leadership of Alexander the Great. It sees the the rise and the falling of the Grecian Empire, eventually being replaced by Rome and uh, the conquest of Rome of these kingdoms. It also sees a period between the Romans and the Greeks uh, called the Maccabean period, a time in which uh, there was a series of kings from the house of uh, Maccabeus that became priest kings, if you will. They occupied not only the role of the king of the country, but also the office of the high priest. And this all was part of setting a, a significant context for the beginning of the New Testament record. So the world of the Jews went through this dramatic and significant change during this particular time. Um, But again, there are no other prophetic voices that are recorded in Scripture until the time of John the Baptist. And and the significance, I think, to Malachi in this is that Malachi actually prophetically foretells John the Baptist's ministry. In places like chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See, I will send my messenger, my malach. Uh, Some people feel that's a play in the word of Malachi or the name of Malachi who will prepare the way for me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger, the malach of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then, of course, in chapter 4, verse 5, it also says, See, I will send Elijah the prophet before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Well, Jesus is the one who informs us in Matthew 11, 11 that, or 11, 12, excuse me, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, 
And then he said, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. And so Jesus is making a direct reference to this statement in Malachi chapter 4, that before the Messiah comes, there would be an Elijah-like prophet. Now, some people have said, well, was John the Baptist the reincarnation of the, uh, the prophet Elijah? And that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that the same kind of anointing and mission that Elijah had, that same empowering of the Holy Spirit was going to rest upon John the Baptist. And so his job was, as he said in chapter 3, was to be that forerunner, the one who would go before and prepare the way of the Messiah and his ministry. Um, because these passages uh, referring to his messenger uh, use the same root word as the name of the prophet Malachi, there have been those who have suggested that Malachi wasn't his actual name. It was really more of a, a prophetic name that was given to some unknown prophet. Um, <clears throat> but the bottom line is that uh, there's no reason not to think that Malachi was an actual individual who prophesied at the time in which he spoke. Beyond the fact of just his name, the only other thing that we know about him is the fact that he was a prophet. Now, he never identifies himself per se as a prophet, so how do we know he's a prophet? Well, I refer you back again to verse 1 of chapter 1 where he says, an oracle the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The word oracle or Masah in Hebrew literally means a, uh, the basic meaning means to be burdened or have a heavy weight put upon you. But it became in a, in a very colloquial sense to refer to any kind of prophetic word. In other words, when a man of God said, I have a burden from the Lord, it meant that he was going to deliver a prophetic message that God had placed upon his heart. And so here's this prophetic utterance coming through his mouth. Um, one of the things that's important, and some of this may be just uh, ground cover for a lot of you that you're not real interested in, but it is significant in just understanding the message correctly, um, is when, when this prophecy was actually delivered. And the likelihood is are somewhere around 425, 420 B.C., somewhere in that area. And we say that because, first of all, he makes reference to there being a temple and there being a priesthood, so that would fit. But secondly, Judah is ruled not by a king, but he's ruled by a governor. And that only happened at that time of the uh, what we call the post-exilic period when they returned from Babylon in captivity. Thirdly, the spiritual condition that is described that the priests and the people are in during this time is identical to the problems that we find that Ezra had to address and Nehemiah had to address. And so the, since there's no reference to either of those two men, it's logical to assume that they were no longer on the scene, at least uh, physically, uh, in terms of being present in the city. And so the messages were delivered by the prophet in place of these two leaders. Uh, in fact, I would say that... It, it not only appears to have been delivered in Nehemiah's absence, but there's a period, an unknown length of time, in which Nehemiah left Jerusalem and went back to Persia. And how long was it before he returned a second time? Well, we don't know because the only thing he says in, in the book of Nehemiah was sometime later. 
Now, unless you know exactly how long sometime later is, uh, we have no indication one way or another. But he came and spent 12 years beginning with the rebuilding of the wall, then went after 12 years governing over Judah, went back to Persia for an undisclosed amount of time, and then returned. And it appears that during that period in which Nehemiah was gone, that everything began to revert back to the same place it was before he came. In other words, the people really slid right back into the same old habits and behavior. I know that's something that you can't relate to in your life because you're always consistent and steadfast. But nonetheless, that was the reality of the situation. And so um, we know the prophet was some place was in Jerusalem and Judah. Twice those places are mentioned in the prophecy. But let me lay the events out in kind of a little bit of a timeline so it'll have more of a story-like feel for you. First of all, a hundred years before Malachi prophesies, we know that the Jews returned from Babylon and came back to Jerusalem by uh, permission and in some degree by command of uh, the Persian emperor Cyrus, the first of the great Persian empires. A hundred years later in 550, or excuse me, uh, 20 years later in 515 B.C., the Jews rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and that's where we studied about the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah a few weeks ago. But in the year 444 B.C. is when we find that Nehemiah returned and rebuilt the wall, and as I said, he remained in Jerusalem for the next 12 years governing over the city until the year 432 B.C., so this message had to be delivered after that. And during this period, as I said, things began to fall apart. And some of the indications, for example, in verse 11 of chapter 3, the prophet Malachi says to the people that if they will repent of their sins, he says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. Vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, they had come under a time of drought, famine, and pestilence. Their, the crops were failing in the field. And God basically had set up a structure for the Israelites that when they transgressed his laws, he would remove his blessings. And where that would most immediately manifest itself would be in their external physical circumstances. So particularly with the food and the harvest. Again, we talked about how that they were subsistence farmers. In other words, they lived by what grew in the fields. And if nothing grew in the field, they didn't live very long. Uh, starvation and disease and, and famine would come very, very quickly to them. So uh, he tells us that this is the case, and as we'll see tonight, he goes on to inform them, this is all directly related to your transgressions. What we find as we go through the book that their hearts had become really indifferent, if not even resentful towards the Lord. Um, they were offering unacceptable, tainted, defiled sacrifices uh, to the Lord. Uh, they had stopped tithing. They were intermarrying with pagans, and they were divorcing their wives of their youth to marry, uh, I guess, younger versions. Um, they had in many ways become morally ambivalent in this place where there was not really a clear sense about good and evil, right or wrong, or truth or falsehood. Uh, that, and this is really what happens as we begin to become distanced from God, our ability to see moral and ethical issues clearly begins to get lost. There's a, almost a moral or spiritual fog that begins to obscure our ability to perceive what's going on. And it's into this what we call a moral morass. 
um, uh, you know, what a morass is. It's just basically a condition of, of, uh, of confusion and obscurity that into this moral morass that God speaks His Word to him. In, in verse 7 of chapter 3, the prophet says, "'Return to me, and I will return to you,' says the Lord Almighty.'" In many ways, if you want a thematic scripture for the book of Malachi, that would be it. Chapter 3, verse 17, God's saying, if you return to me, my blessing will return to you. But you need to look at your situation and say, why am I in this place? Now, I say that because I think this is something that kind of eludes a lot of people as they walk with God and just go through life. God somehow in His, in His divine wisdom has set things up so that when we are out of joint with God, we begin to hurt someplace in our life. When there's something that's causing pain or discomfort, it's God's way, not only physically, but spiritually to say to us, there's something that you need to address. And it's at those moments where, as the psalmist said in Psalm 139, we should be praying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Show me where my anxieties are, those fears that are controlling me, and also show me if there's any wicked way in me. And I always like to, when I use the word wicked, I I feel like I I really need to define it biblically rather than how we use it today, because when we call something wicked, we're referring to something that's really morally depraved. But the biblical term that's often translated wicked simply means anything that takes you away from God. From God's perspective, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you get disconnected from God. Now, it's interesting because how this works, you and I are relational beings. Even if you don't like other people, you're still a relational being. In other words, we have a deep need to be connected in a vital and real way with other people. Again, the term I like to use is to be in redemptive relationships with others. Isolation is not God's plan. We can go to Genesis and realize in chapter 2 that God meant for us to be together. One of the, the worst thing that God said after He created everything, in fact, everything He says about the first six days of creation is it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. You get to chapter 2, verse 18, and the first time He says, man was alone and is not good. So what does it mean to be alone? It means to be, to be lonely, not to have vital connections in your life with other people. And there's anything that severs that vital connection will begin to have a deteriorative effect upon your life, spiritually, emotionally, and otherwise. And so it's not surprising that we all crave to be in meaningful relationships with other people. We just often have a lot of sin damage in our life that makes doing that difficult for us. But essentially what God is looking at, and He's saying, you have become disconnected from me. It's painful enough to be disconnected from other people for whatever reasons, but the most horrible thing is to be disconnected from God. When there's a break between you and your relationship with Him, you will begin to suffer the effects of that. And so God in His wisdom has created the universe that when you become disconnected from God, your life doesn't work out real well. He will allow things to begin to to break and fall apart. Now, I'm not saying that everything that goes on in your life is God trying to show you that you're disconnected, but what I do find is that when things go wrong in my life, it has the effect of either making you get closer to God or run further away from Him. And so that we find that oftentimes in the grieving experiences of our life, we experience the greatest grace that can be given to us in our life. So God uses those circumstances, but in their case, 
they had consciously hardened their heart against the Lord and began to drift away, oftentimes because they become disappointed in the way their life was unfolding. Um, one more, I think, kind of technical aspect of this book is just talking about stylistically. I always try to find things that will help you in your mind to see how one book or prophet is different from the others. And again, many times the way the prophet communicated was unique to his personality and it has those earmarks and we see that in Malachi because what Malachi uses is an interesting device we call a, a dialectical or a, a um, disputational style. In other words, what he does is he delivers six messages and each one has a charge against the, uh, the people and the leaders and then he not only says, this is what I'm saying, and this is how you respond to it. In other words, in verse 2, he begins by saying, I have loved you, says the Lord. And in response, the people question the validity of that statement. And, whether they, and, and oftentimes, they end up pleading ignorance. So we find as we go through that they respond to this particular one, how have you loved us? That statement in itself shows um, an apostasy in the heart, a drifting from God in their heart. But basically, it's something that I think every one of us has said in our hearts, if not actually come right out and said it. When something has gone wrong and you would say, God, if you loved me, you wouldn't allow this to happen. And that's why it makes me wonder what was really the dynamic that began this process of them moving themselves and drifting away from the Lord. Um, because basically, he said, you, you have wearied me. And they say, how have we wearied you? And he says, you have robbed me. He says, how have we robbed you? And so this conversation goes back and forth with God making a statement, them asking a question, and then God giving them the answer to that question. Uh, it, so that when we look at what is really being discussed here, I, I love what Ellsworth said in his commentary on this particular book. He said, he described this way, that Malachi was a, a pressured man pressing, pressuring casual people to feel the weight of truth. It's another way of saying, really, uh, I would say it not quite so eloquently, his desire was to make them uncomfortable. The phrase I like to use is a holy discontent. That God does not want us to be content with things that are less than what He has for us. And there's something within the human nature that's always kind of looking for the, the place where we can glide and abide. You know, that, that kind of Christian nirvana, that easy place where I'm just firing all cylinders, I got straight road in front of me, or as Jake Elwood would say, you know, I've, I'm wearing sunglasses, I got a full pack of cigarettes and a full tank of gas. I mean, that idea that we're able to just take life on and go, and there's going to be no interruption. And, you know, there may not be any speed bumps, but sometimes there's a tortoise or an alligator in the road, <laughs> and it might as well be a speed bump. There's something's going to come, you know, that's going to cause you to really have to reflect more deeply. I think personally, from my own experiences, that those occurrences come because that's the only way we ever get around to digging deeper into our relationship with God. If it were not were for problems, it says in the Psalms, they, because they have no fear of God, they have no changes. In other words, we change out of a response to what God is doing in our life and how He's working in our life. And I'm like you, uh, most painful things that God allows to come into my life are not welcome. They don't come with invitation, and they do not have my permission to be there. Uh, 
doesn't seem to have any effect upon God when I let him know these things because they see, still seem to be there. And it's at those moments that we come not only in brokenness to God over our issues because we realize I don't have the formula or the resources to fix this problem, but more importantly, as we begin to cry out to him, there's something that takes place on a much deeper level inside of our soul where we discover something about God that we otherwise would never have come to know. But you see, the problem I often see is many people, when they come to those kind of situations, rather than drawing near to the Lord, end up running away from Him. They figure that the answer is to get away from God. And you know, we studied another little book. What was the Old Testament, Old Testament book? I remember it's uh, started with a J, a guy named uh, John, Jonah. Jonah? Is that it, Jonah? Who, I mean, that book is there just to help us realize why that's not the best approach to the problem. But nonetheless, it still is one I find that oftentimes people choose. Um, the people were in a condition that I like to describe as dead orthodoxy. And what dead orthodoxy really is, is, is being theologically correct and spiritually totally wrong. Uh, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were victims of dead orthodoxy. They knew how to answer all the questions on the test. They never checked the wrong box. They were experts in knowing what the Bible said. But in terms of practically living out what God wanted, they were a million miles away. Jesus said, you know, you know all these things. You, you split hairs and all these things, but you don't know my heart. So you, keep, you tithe and you do all these things, but you don't know the things that matter to me, which is compassion and mercy and love and so forth. And so they become like in Revelation 3.1 where he describes it saying, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And there's a dangerous place, I think, that Christians, all of us, are very vulnerable to. It's coming into a place where we have been doing this long enough that we just assume that we got it. And we don't really uh, need any more information. We know how to do it. And in a way, we can develop... Every Christian group throughout history has developed their own liturgy, uh, their own way of doing Christianity, which they're absolutely convinced is God's favorite. Uh, <laughs> and usually every, every new religious movement in the history of Christianity has come because somebody said, I don't think that's what God wants anymore, <laughs> and they come up with a new idea. One of my favorite stories is of a, a particular denomination that's still uh, with us today that doesn't believe that you should have any instrumental music in the church. In other words, all singing should be a cappella or with the voice alone. And uh, so, so the story goes, I can't verify its truth, but I like the story, is that uh, one church, had, they had built this church, and they had you know, the organ, the piano, and the church, and uh, then this doctrinal view came in, and the church divided over the instrumentation. And so the group that left went out and built a new church, and what they did when they built it is they made the doorway so narrow that it would be impossible for them to ever get a piano or an organ through the door. <laughs> and that way they ensured that they would never be able to backslide into music. So, I mean, stories like that, whether they're true or not, are, uh, sh kind of show how ridiculous it can become many times that we strain at gnats and what is the gnat? Sometimes it's these particular unique things about different ways that Christians serve and worship God. And then he says we swallow camels. And what is the camel that we swallow? That it's all right not to love them. <laughs> it's all right not to be gracious and kind and loving and merciful and forgiving and all the rest of that stuff. 
And that's an interesting thing because I think that Christians throughout history have always struggled between the tension that's there between the commands of God and the compassion of Christ. We know what the commands of God are. Thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. And we're really, and those things are fairly easy to memorize. I didn't even go to church and my mom taught me the Ten Commandments. I think she thought I needed them. Uh, maybe when I was a kid and I was looking through the crib, she got a vision of me spending my life behind bars. I don't know, but the point was that, you know, she gave me this, you know, basically elementary religious training. I said the Lord's Prayer and all those kinds of things. So I knew what the commands were, but I knew nothing and had experienced, never experienced really the compassion of Christ. And that's why one of the things we find is that Jesus perfectly kept the law of God because that was his nature, but he kept it in love. And the compassion of Christ is a thing that jumps out of us some 20 times. Reference in the Gospels is made to Jesus' compassion. When he would look at the multitudes and saw and through his eyes, they were not this unwashed rabble that was bugging him all the time, but he said he viewed them as sheep without a shepherd, and it says his, his heart went out to them, his compassion went out to them. And the word compassion is, is much more powerful than pity. Pity just says, oh, what a shame. I feel sorry. Pity says, I'm glad I'm not you. But compassion says, I'm not you, but I'm going to enter into your reality so that I can make a difference. And that's the thing I think is really important for us to understand. Dead orthodoxy ends up being very good at pointing out what's wrong with other people. And, you know, as Gail Irwin one time said, I, I become concerned sometimes that we become more known for what we're against than what we're for. Granted, if you're for anything, you're invariably going to have to be against certain other things. And I'm not saying it's wrong to say that something is wrong. If something is wrong, we need to know that it's wrong and we need to say that it's wrong. But we need to say it with the compassion of Christ. So that when the woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus, he, he, he doesn't say, you know, how dare you touch me? you immoral woman, which most rabbis would have said in his day. Not all rabbis would have actually. Instead, what he just looks at and he says, Who has the first, who's without sin? Let him throw the first stone. Well, everybody, as you know in the story, walks away. Jesus looks at her and says, Where are your accusers? And she said, They're gone. He says, Neither do I accuse you. But then he said, Go and sin no more. So he wasn't saying that what she had been doing was right. He wasn't saying adultery is okay in nine out of ten cases. No, he was saying, you know, you know you're wrong. You know you've sinned. I'm just telling you, don't do that anymore. God has just shown you mercy and grace and forgiveness. Now, go and sin no more. And I think that, that, that I wish we had audio recordings of Jesus' teachings. First of all, I could make a fortune off those. Anyway, but <laughs> no, seriously, I think the reason I wish we had them is because what we lose sometimes is the tone and intonation of his voice because how much of communication is the tone in which you say it well i'm told it's 80 percent you know maybe five percent is just simply uh what you say that you can write down this is why emails are dangerous i just advise you never say anything important in an email because you know, when I have to write a blog, man, I, tell you, I can't tell you how I go over that thing over and over and over again because somebody's going to take that in a way that you didn't mean it. It's just the nature of uh, written communication. But the whole point is, when you hear a person's tone, 
you get a real sense of where their heart is at because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when you're, if we could listen to Jesus' words and hear His voice. Now, you and I might, you know, might ask the question, well, if that's so important, then why didn't God wait to bring Jesus into the world after audio recording had been invented? And I have an answer for that too. That's probably not the right one, but it's my answer and I like it. Actually, I believe that in order you to, for you and I to get the real tone of God's voice, we have to approach it with a heart of devotion and surrender. And we have to say, God, speak to me. Because I think that as we pray over the Word of God and we read it with that heart, He actually begins to communicate through His Scriptures in the tone of His Word. I have found that as I've read a passage over praying after praying over it, I've suddenly developed a completely different sense of where God's heart's at. And I think that's the key issue is that do we really have the tone of God's heart? We don't, it's not enough, the dead orthodox says all you need to do is have the information in your head. You just need to know the words. And we become very quick at rattling off those statements and phrases. And we know they're like arrows that we can aim at the, the failings of people around us. Uh, fortunately, the, the, arrow, the bow is in our hands. Otherwise, we'd be shooting ourselves most of the time. But we're good at pointing out at other people. And we completely miss the heart of God because we're not really picking up the tone of His Word or someone really has described as being the spirit of the Scripture. What is God really trying to say? How would His heart communicate this message? And I think as a, as a preacher, teacher, this is like the biggest challenge in the world to really grasp and communicate not just simply what's being said, but what is God's heart as He's saying these things? We have little indications where we read a few different times that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as he pronounces the judgment that's going to come. And that's why, you know, Isaiah would say that God finds no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked because we tend to think that, that God is one of the original blue meanies who sits in heaven looking for people that he can thunderbolt. The truth of the matter is God in actuality became us. He became a man. He took on himself, robed himself in our humanity and lived within our world. Uh, the closest thing I can think to it is being an Indian in some of the major cities. And if you end, walk into some of the, the slums where the people uh, are literally living in cardboard sheds, houses made out of cardboard, their, their drinking water is mud puddles that they can extract water from, and they're urinating and defecating right on the ground out in the open. And, and you know, I, I want to sound noble. I made the mistake of going jogging one day and found myself in the middle of one of these slums. Um, it may not be coincidental that within two hours I became very ill because of what I was exposed to, but the point was I would never choose to go and live in that context because it was just horrible beyond anything I've ever seen. I couldn't imagine people survive there. and Well, truth is they don't survive long. And yet in a very real sense, God became us. He became a man and he walked into the slum of this planet. We may be impressed by it because we have better cardboard than the guy next door. But the simple fact is he entered into the reality of our broken and fallen world and he just came into the midst of us and he says, I love you enough to do this. In fact, I love you enough to allow you to betray me and to murder me because that's the only way that ultimately you can be saved. 
So when you, you begin to understand or begin to sense that reality, you begin to feel in your heart that depth of God's compassion for you. He's not out there looking for people to get in trouble. He's not looking to, for an opportunity to use his accusatory finger, but rather God is looking at a dying world and saying, I love you so much that I will go into that world. And the reality is, friends, that he has called us to do that, that we're if we have the Spirit of Jesus in us, we're to go into that world, but we're to go with that heart, not a heart that seeks to point out where people are wrong, but a heart that seeks to redeem them. And I would say to you, let's understand the prophecy of Malachi and all the prophets from that same perspective, because we often get this image in our mind of these guys wearing strange clothes and long beards and unwashed hair and yelling and screaming and you know, rebuking and condemning and... and uh, I don't think that was the case at all. I think they were people like other people. They had a few weird moments when they had to walk around the city naked and things like that, but you know. But the motive behind their heart was God's love for these people. And that's why what we have is a call to repentance. In chapter 3 and verse 6, he says the following. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Important concept theologically. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And we say God doesn't change. He doesn't change his theology. He doesn't change his morality. God doesn't change his view of what ethics and the rest of that are. He's, he's consistent the same always. And he said, but the, the real upshot isn't that I'm rigid and inflexible. The fact that I don't change is the reason that you're not destroyed. Which tells me what? That God is looking for an opportunity to love and to save and to redeem, not to destroy he, and then he goes on, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. You've never been obedient to me. You've never, you've never listened to me. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, God's saying, give me the opportunity to bless your life. Give me the opportunity to do great and marvelous things in your world. Well, let's look at the book here in the time that we have left, just kind of go through it because... I broke up the outline to the book not in, in a sense of chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, so forth, but rather in somewhat of a thematic way. And what I want to do is focus, first of all, on what I call the six willful sins that they're condemned for. And it begins in chapter 2, as I, or chapter 1, excuse me, in verse 2, where he begins confronting them because they had repudiated God's love. In other words, they were rejecting that God was a loving God. They say... He says to them, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? The answer he gives really kind of escapes modern readers because then he talks about how that the kingdom of Adam was destroyed and even though they determined they were going to rebuild, they never rebuild and the kingdom was finished and gone forever. What was he saying? We have this passage where Esau I loved and or I hated and Jacob I have loved and that shows up later in Romans and causes all sorts of theological confusion. What exactly was he saying to them? He's saying, you tell me that I don't love you. Do you realize that your existing right now is evidence of my love for you? And I think that has a direct application. He says, look around the nations around you that were destroyed by the Persians and by the Babylonians and by the Assyrians and by the Greeks. Look at, where are they? They're all gone. You alone of all the nations of the earth were called out of captivity and exist today. And that's why I often talk about Israel as being a historical anomaly. It's the only nation in the history of the world that's been destroyed not once but twice and still exists today. There's not another example that we have in the history of mankind. Great nations last, on average, 250 years. 
And then they pass into secondary or third tier status or some completely become uh, lost forever. So that you, he's saying to them, the very fact that you exist is evidence that I love you. There's no other explanation. And I think that that has some certainly direct application to you and my, me because in those moments when everything in your life seems to be going backwards, upside down in whatever other direction you want to take it, and you just sit there and say, God, don't you love me? It's at that moment God's saying, <clears throat> do you have a pulse? <laughs> if you have a pulse, you have evidence that I love you because if I didn't love you, you would not have a pulse. This, you, know, you wouldn't be complaining right now. The very ability to complain, whine, gripe is the evidence that God loves us because He doesn't snuff you for it right away. And so this is essentially the same thing He was saying to them. Um, the second thing He goes on to in, in verse 6, He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. And if I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? And he says, oh, you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? God's answer in, in, in verse 7 of that chapter is, goes this way. Here's how you do it. You place defiled food on my altar. You sacrifice crippled and diseased animals. In other words, the sacrifices were supposed to be the best of the best. He says, what you're doing is you're deciding not to give me the best. You're giving me what you don't mind losing. It's when we give God the scraps, the leftovers, the secondhand things. Remember what David said when he picked the, when God showed him the site of where the temple should be built? And he said to Arana, the Jebusite, who owned this threshing floor, this property, and he, Arana says, here, just take it. You're the king. You can have it. And he says, I will not offer sacrifice to God anything that has cost me nothing. And he says, it's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost me something. And that's something I find interesting because sometimes we approach God with the idea, Lord, I just want to live a sacrificial life as long as it doesn't cost me anything. As long as it doesn't cost me my time, my energy, my, my health, uh, my fame and recognition, whatever. God, I'll, I'm just available. Whatever you want, just don't make it cost too much. And God simply says to them, this is where you're at. He says, you sniff at my offerings contemptuously, contemptuously. I like that word, contemptuous. I like it because uh, John Gott at the University of Washington, who, who has been researching why people get married, divorced for uh, 30-some years, has found in their research, I mean, very empirical scientific study, that they can, he says, I can identify to at least 85% accuracy whether a couple will survive more than two years of marriage. And he said, the, the one thing they look for, they videotape him in study, he says, what we look for are signs of contempt. You know, where the husband's saying something and the wife goes, that's a sign of contempt, ladies. <laughs> just by the way, just want to mention it. Or the guy says, women, oh, you can't live with them, you can't live without them. Cheaper to keep them. That's contempt, you know. And so what God says, you have contempt. Yeah, you're going through it, the motions. You, this is your job. You're doing your duty. But really, it's a burden to you. It's contempt. If you could just mail it in, you'd do that. If you could just go pick up a paycheck and, and didn't have to show up for work, that's what you do because you don't value. And that's what contempt really means is I stop valuing what's in front of me. 
whether it's a person or a thing or a responsibility. And that's why I think it's so important for us to understand that this, this kind of apostate dynamic that he's describing in this book is something that happens very subtly within the heart. It's the first thing where we begin to question God's love for us, and then we respond further to question whether it's of value for us to love Him in return. And we begin to view serving Him as being this heavy burden, this heavy responsibility that we have to carry, and we begin to teach the treat the, the, the God's will for our life with contemptuousness. It's the kind of thing that, oh, I have to read my Bible, I have to go to church, I have to spend some time talking to this person who has these issues. And it, it, we begin to become contemptuous. We don't, we don't value the, the preciousness and the sacredness of the opportunity. And then he goes on and says that this thing begins to take even more traction where he says, thirdly, that they reject really, in my words, the sacredness of marriage. That Jesus made it very clear. He says, what God has joined together, let no man break apart. And yet in verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, another thing that you do. Now keep in mind, he's talking to the priests here now too, the, the role models for the nation. And he says, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce. God says, one of the reasons he tells us, hey, divorce, he says, because I want a godly offspring. What divorce does is has such a devastating and shattering emotional effect upon children that it makes them not pursue godliness more times than not. Then fourthly, he said they had really actually begun redefining what was righteousness. What does God uh, want? In verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words and they say, how have we wearied him? And he answers, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is God's justice? Interesting, two sides of the equation, or the question. There are some people who are going around saying, God doesn't care what you do. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter to him. There's no, no, no out of bounds for God. He just, everything's good. Or you on the other side saying, God lets people get away with everything and never deals with them. Basically, you're accusing God of not being true to himself and following his own standards. And then fifthly, he accuses them of, of robbing God. He says in verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we do that? And he answers, in tithes and offerings... You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent the pestilence from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty." And so this is the only place in the entirety of Scripture where God ever says you have permission to test Him. You have opportunity to test God. How do you test Him? He says, if you give, God will bless you. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. 
And the blessing, he says, that you'll receive will come because you have given. And so, again, under the Old Testament uh, commandment, they actually were required to bring around 30% of all of their income to the house of the Lord in one form or another. And they had their 10% tithe, they had the 10% that they had to set aside for the poor, and they had 10% they were supposed to set aside so they could go to Jerusalem three times a year and celebrate feasts before the Lord. So we would call that the vacation fund. But bottom line is that uh, they had these financial requirements. I mean, they were obligated by God to do these certain things. Now, you may be saying, thank goodness we're not under those Old Testament rules. Um, you're right, we're not. God doesn't want 10% of your income. He wants 100%. It's all His. And it's really not a question of, God, what do you get? It's a question of, what do I get to keep? But sixthly, he talks about the attitude of reviling uh, God's grace. He says in verse 13 of chapter 3, You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? And he says, you have said it is futile to serve God. It's not, there's no benefit. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not gonna, that's not going to make any difference. I'm not going to pray. That's not going to make any difference. I mean, that's what they were saying, essentially. What did we gain, they say, by carrying on this, His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? In other words, follow God. You can't have any fun at all. You just <laughs> yeah, I know you're a Christian because you look miserable. And he says, but instead now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, even those who challenge God escape. And so he said, you, you've created this whole theology that it's more profitable to ignore God than it is to obey Him. Well, as a consequence of these things, he says there are judgments coming, and he lists three judgments that would befall them. First, the judgment upon the priests. He said to them in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, if you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honor my name... I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I've already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. So he's initially saying, just look at everything that's going south in your life. I want you to know it's going south because I have removed my grace and my blessing, and I've brought a curse upon you. Again in verse 7, he says, For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. In other words, what they were teaching, not through their teaching as such per se, but through their lives. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Surely, he goes on in chapter 4, verse 1, the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble in that day. And I will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty, not a root or a branch will be left on them. And then he moves on to talking about not just the priests, but the nations who are following their lead. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 3, so I will come near to you for judgment, and I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers. Those are people basically who tell lies to get ahead. Against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change, so you descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. But finally, he brings uh, promises to those who are faithful. He's talked about the sins of the priests. He's talking about the sins of the nation. But what about that remnant of people who are faithful to God? And to them, he says in verse 16 of chapter 3, first of all, those who feared the Lord talked with each other 
And the Lord listened and heard. That's an amazing thing. God is listening in our conversations. And then he goes on and says, A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possessions, and I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his own son who serves him. And again in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, You who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. So this promise that he's going to do two things, there's a scroll of remembrance, and secondly, he said, you're going to be my treasured possessions forever. Which brings me really to the last part of our talk tonight, and that's really where do we see Jesus in the book of Malachi? And I've really already kind of let that cat out of the proverbial bag. We have it in chapter 3, verse 1 again, where he says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then he says, Then suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple. I believe that's speaking of Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Remember we talked about Haggai? He described him as the one who's desired by all nations. The one that men desire in their heart, the one who will come and fix everything that's broken about us will come uh, and, and renew the covenant. And the second part, of course, we talked about Elijah, where he said in chapter 4, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. You may wonder, why is he talking about restoring these family relationships? Of all the Ten Commandments, there's one commandment that Paul notes. He says it's the only commandment out of the ten that has a promise of blessing attached to it. Love the Lord. He says, honor your mother and father that it may go well with you and your life might be long upon the earth. Now, think about that for a moment. What God is saying is, if you don't honor your parents, it won't go well in your life, and you may not be around long enough to find out how bad it could get. And so he says, you need to understand, and I think this really kind of connects here, because what he says is that one of the signs of them turning back to God is they will begin to honor their parents. Now, I, my parents weren't believers most of my life. My mom and dad both got saved shortly before they left this world. But I discovered, based upon this whole teaching, that my responsibility was to honor them. And I remember it was tough because my dad um, often offered his advice, and quite honestly, from a Christian perspective, it was the worst advice. <laughs> that, I mean, I, it was stuff I, I said, you know, I just... I can't do that. But um, I wouldn't tell him that. I would just call him up and I'd say, Dad, I got this situation. What do you think I should do? And he would give me all of his advice and I'd say, thank you, I really appreciate it. And then I'd hang up and I'd <laughs> go do what I knew God wanted me to do. And it worked out really great. My dad would always say, see, you listen to me and things work out well. I said, absolutely, Dad. God bless you. <laughs> um, and I think what I found was that when he was on his, his deathbed, he said to me, that it was though that dynamic of our relationship that opened his heart to the gospel. You know, it was, it was because when I was a young man before I was saved, I was not a good son. 
I was that, that kid that gave his parents nightmares and palpitations and all those things. And I remember one time just almost caused my dad to have a coronary where he, he came to me. He said, son, I'm really concerned. I said, why? He says, I think your brother's using drugs. And I said, dad, don't worry about it. He's not. He said, well, how can you be so sure? I said, because dad, I use drugs all the time. And I know he doesn't. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you say to your parents, you know. <laughs> But it was just that that was a guy I was. I mean, I just did that just to give him a hard time. And I think it was such a powerful thing when I got saved that I just began to realize that God wants me to treat him with reverence and regard, honor him. For one simple reason, I wouldn't be in the world if he hadn't done it. I mean, I, my existence in this world is a consequence of his faithfulness to be a father to me. And, I, and you, you know, so often in this day and age where we find that it's so convenient to find somebody else to blame, well, the first one we usually start with is our own parents. Because you know what you figure out as a teenager is your parents aren't perfect. And then when you hit your 20s, you know what you discover? They're sinful, just like everybody else. They have these imperfections. They're such, parents are such easy targets. Now, I know some of you are sitting back and saying, but you don't understand my childhood. You're probably right. And I don't want to say to you you should call evil good. But what I'm saying is that God wants you to treat them with honor. And God wants you to love them and God wants you to forgive them. Because Blaise Pascal said that there are two passions in the soul of every man. He said of every man who doesn't know God. And he said it's um, hatred and self-hatred. And I thought about that for a long time. I thought, wait a minute, how does that work? I mean, I don't know if I agree with that. And then suddenly it just really occurred to me that at the base of all human behavior is really this kind of competitive thing with everybody else. And we really don't, we're not acting in a loving way towards others. We're often acting in a hateful way towards what we can get from them, what advantage we can get, what, how we can position ourselves relationally. Here's the problem with hatred. It boomerangs. It ricochets. If you hate somebody, it's going to come back to you in a strange form. It's going to come back in the form of self-hatred. If you love somebody, it's going to ricochet too, and it's going to come back to you in the form of self-love. I mean, think about it for a moment. When do you feel best about yourself? When you've been angry and bitter and resentful and malicious towards somebody else? I'm going to get even with them. Isn't that a great feeling? emotionally how do you feel at that moment and if you succeed at actually getting even whatever that means it isn't very satisfying is it how long before it's just like it's more gravel in your mouth but when you show love when you show forgiveness you show compassion you show caring you do something sacrificial for somebody you walk away saying man I, I just feel like I just fulfilled what I was created to do and that's because that's what you're created to do. So I think it's important to understand. And that's why I think it's in here, this whole idea, turn the hearts. Because he says to them, if you don't turn back, if you don't turn to me when my messenger comes, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Well, what happened? The messenger came, Elijah came, he pointed the way, the Messiah came, and what did they do? He came unto his own, his own did not receive him. They rejected him. And what happened in the land? A, decade, a generation later, the Romans came and completely destroyed the place. And 
It was left in ruins and people were cast upon the earth. A curse came upon them because they rejected the messenger. So in this book we find him not only predicting the ministry of John the Baptist and the coming of the Messiah, but also how that they would reject him and what the consequences of that would be. Which brings us really to the opening of the Gospel of Matthew. If you turn there, I want to spend the next hour... No. <laughs> well, I'm already four minutes and 22 seconds over. And uh, since it's the last in the series... Stop me. Anyway, um, I just want to say this has been a pleasure going through the Old Testament with you this year. I just, it's been a huge pleasure. It's been one of the highlights of my week coming here and doing this. And uh, uh, so I have really mixed emotions about not going through in the summer, but I think it's the right thing to do. But really looking forward in the fall, picking up and, and doing the same thing through the New Testament. And I hope that you'll be with us, and I hope that you'll bring all your friends and relatives. It does wonders for my ego to see every seat filled. <laughs> I'll see you at the picnic. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your, the opportunity we've had tonight to just really for me to relish your word, Lord, and enjoy what it says. Speak into our lives powerfully through these things, Lord, that we might enjoy you forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you.